There is nothing we should be quite so grateful for as the last line of a poem that goes, when your own heart asks, be resolved, young samurai, and tell the world what you witness here today. Throughout its history, the Empire has seen the birth of heroes and villains, even those with godlike power. There, there are a couple instances of like, oh, this this individual ascends or this individual descends, but also ascends. You know, like it is, it is a it is a common thing in the realm of Rokugan where uh, individuals become empowered and vastly shift the the landscape of the Empire. Welcome to our eighth episode explaining Legend of the Five Rings on the It's a Mimic channel. I'm Megan, and with me again is Roman and guest star Steve. I'm back! <laughs> In this episode, we're going to be diving into the different campaign options for storytellers and players. We will explore the two different utilizing game styles, which is politics and military, then explore how to dive into an epic campaign. But before we get into that, we're actually going to explore the Empire itself. And we're going to describe some of the geography and the seasons of the Empire mm. to give you a little more of an understanding of the when and the where of some of the games that you're going to be running. So Rokugan is a rocky mountainous land surrounded by mountains on the north, west, and south sides and an ocean to the east. Only about a fifth of the land is flat. The majority is rolling hillsides, steep gorges, narrow valleys, ravines, and mountains. Near the ocean are the flatter, more arable lands. Uh, nobility make castles in mountainous regions or inaccessible passes, where flatlands are used for farms, ports, and cities. The climate in Rokugan is diverse. Winter is generally short with heavy snowfalls, while summer is long and sultry. Fall is cool and spring is wet. Earthquakes occur regularly and hurricanes can also be frequent, as great storms have destroyed entire villages and regions of Rokugan. There are many volcanoes in Rokugan as well, several being active. From that short description, I'm sure you can tell that Rokugan is varied, but also unpredictable in its landscape. It is divided into various sized provinces, each controlled by distinct groups. The largest groups and the largest areas are controlled by the clans of Rokugan. All land is owned by the emperor. The territory given to the respective clans and daimyo was granted by the emperor for the daimyo to act as stewards, not as owners, over the respective provinces. In return for permission to live on the emperor's land, the clans pay taxes to the emperor. Should the emperor believe that a clan cannot protect the lands that they hold for him, he can turn their stewardship over to another clan. This was how many of the wars in Rokugan begin, when one clan attempts to show the emperor that another clan could not sufficiently protect their land and therefore should be stripped of it. And let me tell you, that happens more often than you'd think. What does that mean? 
It's just a common occurrence for samurai to petition the emperor and say, hey, this portion of land is definitely not being well taken care of, or this portion of land actually belonged to my great-great-grandfather and members of this clan deserve this tract of land. Like, all of these things are constantly called into question and brought before imperial court so that they can be re-evaluated over and over and over again in front of the eyes of the bureaucracy. Mm. But it takes uh, a real big dick player to uh, decide that the emperor isn't doing a good enough job. And I believe there are only a number of clans that have ever made that play. <laughs> there, there are very few who have made that play, and none have gotten away with it. No. Was it Moto Chagatai? Yes. Moto Chagatai, a member of the Unicorn Clan, decided that the dude running the Empire isn't doing a good enough job, so I'm going to rock up to the Imperial City, and I'm going to sit on the throne, and any of you are welcome to try and stop me. And, uh... Lo and behold, Moto Chagatai did not, in fact, sit on the throne. He yep. believed it so strongly that he decided to march in the dead of winter when the snow was heavy, and typically when a war within Rokugan um, is at a standstill. Because mm -hmm. that brings me to my next point, like, what about the seasons? Like, because you talked about, like, the geography and, like, that kind of piece, like, what part of the seasons plays into count? Well, it, well again, like, summer is, is warm and hospitable, whereas winter is short, but... Like, it, it is entirely debilitating. When you imagine that most of your travel is going to be done on foot or by horse, um, any sort of heavy snowfall mm -hmm. just completely shuts down travel within the Empire. And something that we'll touch on a little bit later is um, winter courts. So part of the reason that um, winter courts exist is because people can't go anywhere in the winter, right? Mm. Like a heavy snowfall hits the empire and people are like, nah, I'm not trying to travel halfway across the empire to pass off a message or to um, engage in any sort of politicking. Like before the snow hits, I'm going to find a place where I can hunker down and then spend the next couple of months, you know, rubbing elbows, kissing babies, doing that thing in a place where I feel comfortable. All right, let's roll some dice, gentlemen. Roll the two. Six. Ten. Wow. Amazing. Look at me go. What are we talking about? All right, so which region of Rokugan is the most interesting to you? Oh, God. Um, I think I have two answers for that. Uh, one, as a mantis, the, the Isles of uh, Spice and Silk are, I think, a really interesting area to be explored, just because there are lots of little, I don't want to say biomes, because it's all sort of... It's sort of the same biome, but there are lots of little different islands that can be explored and little, like, slices of life pulled from them. Um, and it is slightly less charted than the rest of Rokugan, so it does allow for some interesting storytelling ability and exploration to be done. Um, I will also say that calling back to the first game that we ever played in was part of a storyline about a court that took place at... Um, Kuden Komori. Kuden Komori, which is the Kuden of the Bat Clan, which is a minor clan. Um, so there, there is sort of that's sort of my origin story into Legend of the Five Rings. So that plays into it. Then the fact that the Mantis are from there plays into it. So I am kind of attached to that area of the Empire. Um, and then the other half of it is just the Shadowlands. I think the Shadowlands are a really interesting sort of dark place. That sort of um, forbidden zone, you know. We don't go there, Simba. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, do not, we, do not rule, we do not rule over wherever the light touches. It's, 
Yeah. You know. <laughs> the, the light don't touch these lands, fam. Yes. Yeah. yes. The Shadowlands are called shadowy for a reason. Uh, and I think there's just, it, it is, again, sort of like that idea that there is this forbidden zone that is super dangerous and super sort of uh, uncharted as a result of its nature is always kind of an interesting uh, story. Yeah. No, I feel like I I was going to say the Shadowlands because you have a lot of freedom in that area because there are clans that venture in there. There are specific ones and abilities that give them the process of being able to be within the Shadowlands without crab. too much, yes, crab, without too much like detriment, um, but gives you the creative freedom a little bit if you're a DM to kind of like place in what you want. You can start using uh, some of the big bad evil guys or even just regular like dark shadowy evil things that your characters can fight that might be easier like that aren't necessarily regularly popping up within the regular lands of Rokugan which gives those players that want a more of a fantasy battle play map would be the Shadowlands. But I do prefer like the North when you're thinking of like the Dragonlands, um, a little bit of the Phoenix Lands because it's very mountainous. It's very adventurous. Like you're going to require certain feats to be able to survive in those areas, right? So if you're going to climb the mountains, you're going to want people that can actually physically do those things. Hmm. Uh, if you're going to want to like travel into the desert areas, like a little bit more south, like you're going to have to have someone that can survive in those zones. Right. So it becomes a little bit more environmental when you're further up north. And I think that's very interesting to me. I have to so. know how to catch those mountain tuna. That mountain, get that mountain tuna. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Ro? Um, it varies, but uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the golden plains of the Akoma. Um, just the idea of these like long, sprawling, almost savanna-like plains in the middle of the Empire, um, where there are all of these wild animals, there are all of these like natural problems that you will run into if you're not prepared for them, where those who are native to that area have sort of become accustomed to them and have that understanding of what you have to look out for. Um, throwing folks who aren't uh, Lion Clan or Unicorn Clan into those environments really forces them to sort of take a second to be more cautious. Mm-hmm. Whereas your few Lion or Unicorn Clan samurai who are there would be like, oh, okay, well, I'm right at home. Like, this is where they really get to shine, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I guess it at least in my games, because people typically choose not to play lion or unicorn, like those are the regions or those are the the areas that I love to sort of showcase. Yeah. Well, I remember playing a, a character of that wasn't actually from like a, des- a desert land or where heat was not necessarily normal. And we ended up going to the desert lands and then the shadow lands and so on and so forth. And she actually rolled to have, she had to change her outfit. She was a bushy, but she couldn't wear her armor anymore. Because she rolled so fucking bad that she couldn't breathe in her armor. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to change her outfit, which gave a detriment to her because it's not her homeland. Yeah. And this is not a place where she's used to operating in heavy armor. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of similar to D&D. When you're wearing your heavy armor for too long, you do start taking levels of exhaustion. It was very similar, but you put that in the game because we use it as an environmental, like, warning, almost. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I can relate to that as somebody who played a heavy armor bushi on a boat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fall in the water, die! <laughs> and you know what? He did. He did. <laughs> he fell in the water and he died. Yeah. So I remember, like, and this, like, ties back into, like, uh, like the whole podcast as a whole. My friend Casey uh, played a um, dragonborn who had bones of metal. So she was 500 pounds. <laughs> and at one point, we were on a boat. 
And we were in battle with a full fucking fledge, like full fucking like water battle, whole nine yards. And she just tied herself to the mast of the boat, to the boat. Cause like, if I go overboard, I'm dead. Yep. Full stop. If I go overboard, I'm dead. So she actually became like this, like beacon and like placement of she won't move. She placed herself in the middle of the ship, tied herself to the mast. And we all tied ourselves to her cause she wasn't going to move. And that is how we survived this like whole on like ship battle kind of thing. But I feel like environment plays a very big part into how you play your characters, right? Because yeah. Urbushi is not going to be in full plate if you're in the deserts. It's hard. It sucks. And they might do it to try to be prideful, but there's going to be the person who's of that climate being like... <laughs> no, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. <laughs> do you want some light armor, my guy? <laughs> like, <laughs> how you doing today? How you doing today? <laughs> but I think that that's a fun piece of it, too, is that you pull them out of their like regular place of living and like what they're used to, and I think that adds a little bit of a dynamic to your player group. Yeah, because you challenge what the character is typically used to, and you challenge their understanding of the world at large, right? Yeah, for sure. But speaking of that, which season would you prefer to run your games in? I am a... So, oh, actually, sorry, I'm at the tail end. Yeah, it's Steve's turn. My goodness. <laughs> Just because okay. I'm a guest doesn't mean you get to walk all over me. Well, maybe you should fill up a little more of the space, Steve. <laughs> I do, I'm very He's a frost giant. Do <laughs> <laughs> you ever struggle being six foot nine? I would if I was six foot nine. It's the internet. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> I know. I'm seven foot, obviously. No, fair <laughs> And you can't teach that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure that the campaigns I've played have ever had a super heavy uh, emphasis on what season it was. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to really think about it and like what the, the relevance is. I might just have to default to like my own personal preference, which is just like, I would love to play in spring. Because uh, that's sort of like that very nice middle middle sort of like temperature zone where you're not boiling, but you're also not freezing. Uh, and the worst you have to sort of deal with is rain. But that's just sort of more of a personal preference than really in our, a role-playing one. Um, it does sort of open up to a lot of spring courts and so on and so forth, which does give an opportunity to have those um, very social-based interactions, which I find very interesting when not heavily policed. Because... Uh, I think that's, that is the core of court-based games, and I think we're going to get into this a little bit more in a moment here, but the idea of, hey, we're going to go fight with our words can be very intimidating if you want to play things like to the T, how the rules are written in the world. Um, whereas if you sort of take some of the, uh, the, or I guess maybe put the gloves on a little bit and, and sort of say, hey, you're, you're a person that exists in a real space where saying one wrong word could mean the difference between war or not, or you committing seppuku or not, um, and and recognize the fact that people are going to say things that maybe aren't exactly how they would be said in Rokugan, uh, it can be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And, and you can absolutely have some really interesting conversations and back and forth about things. And depending on, on who's running your campaign, you can sort of supplement what you say with roles, because that's why you have stats. Because in the same way that not everybody can swing a broadsword properly, not everybody can wield words adeptly and smoothly in a way that makes perfect sense and can tell exactly the what like the the intent that you have. Um, so being able to supplement that with a role that says, "Oh yes, my character, of course, is good at this and knows what to say," can sort of adapt things. Yeah. And I can see Roman licking his teeth, and I feel like he has a counterpoint. So. 
so I'm going to pass it to him, if that's okay. That's fine. What do you got, B? No, there's actually no counterpoint. You yeah. just, like, uh, you, uh, you basically just, like, read out most of my notes for a later point. Oh, good. Oh, no. <laughs> good. Read it again later. No one's listening. It's fine. It's almost like you looked into my soul. <laughs> I mean, it's like you taught me everything I know or something. I don't know. Wow, that's gross, guys. Um, I don't have a favorite season to play in. However, I do enjoy putting festivals in campaigns. I love a good festival. So, like, if it's winter, have a winter festival. Have a winter court. Whether or not that's the focus of your game, it's happening in the background. Mm. It's going to go on whether you care about it or not, right? So even the campaign that I played in, the festival was not the focus, but it existed. Mm. And it was an option for those players that wanted to engage in something a little bit different other than heavy politics, heavy conversation about possible war, like all those pieces that are very serious and like samurai sadness simulator nonsense gives a reprieve. Yes. Like I remember there was a session where we literally just went through the festival, tried all the foods, did a couple of games, did a couple of things, just like almost like a, a filler episode of feel good moments. I like it's like a break from that serious and heavy nonsense that can happen within these games. It's like you're almost your comedic relief to your tragedy. Oh yeah. Is throwing in a seasonal festival. So even if the season and what's happening like in the background is not the focus of your campaign, know what season you're playing in and it's going to be going on in the background whether you care about it or not and there might be one player at the table that's like, "Yes, I would like to go and explore that festival. Mm-hmm. I want to go and talk to like the Shugenja here who is offering boons based on the season that's occurring." Like so know your seasons and enjoy them for what they are. But as a person, I'm a winter festival human being. I love a guy. I love the winter. <laughs> Bring back the winter. <laughs> I am a very firm believer that each season isn't just like, it's never sort of summertime. It's never sort of fall. It's never sort of winter or spring. It is each season brings out a certain vibe and brings out a lot of... Um, different things in people, right? Yeah. So when it's summer, everybody's sweaty. Everybody's miserable. Everybody is a little bit uh, frustrated by the fact that it's just so hot. Fair enough, yes. <laughs> Everybody is picking up on those extra few pheromones. Everybody is feeling a little more like heightened and, you know, a little more brash, right? When it's wintertime, everybody's freezing. Everybody is a little bit uncomfortable. It feels like like no meal is ever filling enough yeah. You know, um, and so like I enjoy spring and fall games because it gives you that little bit of like, okay, like the seasons are becoming nice again or oh no, the seasons are becoming a little less nice. I run the bulk of my games in like the dead of winter or the height of summer because it draws out all of those emotions that are completely unavoidable, yeah. right? The emotions that are based exclusively on physical sensations that we can't control. Yeah, that's fair. I, I do recall when we were doing the Mantis and Ukraine court game, we showed up in the middle of a storm and the setting was an island and so everybody had to sail there and it was all about how each of the different delegations sort of rolled off their boat after being on high seas with super high waves and yeah. like sleeting rain and so on and so forth. And like, yeah, the Crane delegation got off their boat a lot differently than the Mantis. It's true. Right? Because they have their sea legs. The others do not so much. <laughs> Yeah, and like, it's it's not as interesting walking into a story where everybody shows up in excellent condition. Everybody shows up just ready to go. Feel no. good. Everybody should show up either... Fucked up in some way. <laughs> well, like, e- e- either entirely 
like demolished by the things that have happened before them or invigorated by the things that have happened before showing up, That's right? Fair. Like you shouldn't show up neutral. Yeah. You shouldn't show up just being like, well, this is another day. It's like, no, I came into this knowing that things are going to be horrible and they're, the events of what is going to occur afterwards are either going to reinforce that mm-hmm. or it's going to prove you wrong Fair. and vice versa. Oh yeah, everything before this was great and then I met this dude who fucking spilled tea all over me and shit on me. Or, uh, wow. <laughs> I mean, am I the only one? Yes. You can't stick with confidence. Just decided to double down after the tea. It's like, well, I mean. <laughs> I mean, I'm here already. I've disgraced my family. I've disgraced my cow. Let's just go hard. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, that being said, um, so we're going to go into the two types of major games that we can potentially play, one of them being military games. So military games are typically more action focused, uh, where combat should be expected once or even twice a session. While L5R combat is typically decisive and lethal, there are variants of the rules that modify the base wound pool and allow for a more cinematic style. Uh, Bushi and Shugenja find themselves best suited to these types of games where courtier may feel like they aren't contributing as much. Um, There are three different kinds of military games in my opinion. Uh, So there are battles, which are excellent for one-shots, prolonged wars, which are excellent for, you know, a couple of sessions, and then Mushashugyo, which are excellent for a prolonged campaign. So battles are... Again, excellent for one-shots, and there are certain moments in Rokugani history which have come down to single battles. Uh, Singular battles allow for more high-octane... Singular battles allow for more high-octane heroism and allow players to feel more free in taking larger risks. Uh, Notable ones being uh, the Battle of White Stag. We have spoken about this in previous episodes. Uh, It was a naval battle which occurred when Empress Hante Yugozohime ended the two-year open trade agreement with the the Gaijin peoples who refused to accept her edict. These small battles allow us opportunities to throw our characters deep into the mix of things and risk them without really worrying about what's going to happen afterwards, as most one-shot campaigns do. Prolonged wars are usually made up of a series of battles and allow for a more drawn-out military-style campaign. They provide opportunities for characters to see promotion through valorous behavior and can shape inter-clan politics on a large scale. The War of the Rich Frog was a conflict that lasted from 1165 to 1166 between the Unicorn and the Lion, centered around Toshi Sano Kanemochi Keru, so the village of the Rich Frog, <laughs> uh, a small but productive trade city on the Lion-Unicorn border. The city had become a holding of the Unicorn clan on their return, though the Lion had long wanted to reclaim the city. So a campaign centered around trying to reclaim the War of the Rich Frog as the Lion or defend the uh, sorry, the village of the rich frog as uh, as the unicorn would be an excellent way of demonstrating uh, some prolonged wars. There is also a, uh, a skill that I find has been, it's often very underutilized in Legend of the Five Rings that is most common on, I'd say, lion and unicorn bushi uh, called battle, which is literally the ability to sort of assess uh, a tactical view of a larger combat mm-hmm. um, that really comes into play, I think, in these kinds of campaigns where you are not only assessing 
how a large-scale battle is happening at the time, but the effects of it going forward as well. Um, I think I could probably count on one finger the number of times I've used battle in a campaign, but it, it is something that is sort of unique to Legend of the Five Rings, as far as I'm aware, uh, is that yeah. sort of like larger scale skill um, that really applies to the more military-focused clans. I've used it so many times! Have you? I have! Yeah. Uh, one time was by accident, because I was forced <laughs> to, and that was because my character who loved to build maps saw a map, it was a battle map, and Rome was like, roll me a battle skill, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you <go> what? <laughs> so I rolled it, rolled really well for some fucking reason, and was able to determine their battle strategy based on the map I was looking at. Beautiful. Right, so there's different ways to utilize that, and then we did use it when doing, like, larger, like, we did use it when we did, like, a large... When we did mass combat. Mass combat kind of thing, which we'll talk about. So that being said, gentlemen, are we ready to roll some dice, or do you have more? There's one more. Go throw down. Uh, Mushashugyo is a a warrior's pilgrimage, uh, which they may request of their lord once in their life. It is not to be asked for lightly, and for a lord to deny it is seen as distasteful. A samurai puts down their life and becomes a ronin for a specified period of time, traveling the land to find themselves. The warrior's pilgrimage usually has two to three places for the player to explore that are meant to show them some aspect of the character that they have written, or challenge them to face part of their character in their disadvantages. Beautiful. Yeah, well. <laughs> How to, way to romanticize battle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, pick a dice. Two. Three. Ooh, eight. Oh, you want to roll. I did. Where'd you go? I win. All right, so I'm going to answer my own fucking questions. Which clans do you feel interact the most for military games? Uh, I mean, the honest answer are those that are mostly militant. Like, <gasps> crazy. I'm God. shocked. <laughs> like, lions. And, like, I, I think we've talked about this before in a previous episode. If there's a war, a lion is present somewhere. <laughs> like... <laughs> Um, and like unicorns who are usually utilized within battle because of their skills and their non-affiliation with most other clans. They're just used as military grunts to a degree, right? So the ones that come most to mind, but of course I love naval battle. I like, I've talked about how much I enjoy the fact that the seas are an unutilized and unbridled like area of the world in E&D and L5R as a whole. Uh, so I enjoy the idea that like the Mantis and the Crane would go at it somewhere in the middle of the sea. But that's just my dream. But who's next? Uh, I feel that like the clans that interact with each other the most are the ones that are the most at odds, mm-hmm. right? So you'll find that uh, the clans that have the um, the most fluid understanding of Bushido will interact with the clans that have the most rigid understanding of Bushido the most often, yeah. right? So um, sometimes it is, you know, oh, both of the high honor clans are like, no, 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 I am the most honorable. No, 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 I am the most honorable. Sometimes it's, it's just a matter of misunderstanding between largely different viewpoints, yep. right? So you'll end up with crabs fighting cranes over, no, no, this this family belongs to us. No, this family decided to join us because they were sick of you. Okay, well, it doesn't matter if they were sick of us. They're still belonging to us. So give us our family back. We fight them. Yeah. Right? We fight you. So which clans do I feel interact the most in military games? I feel like all of the clans interact in military games. If you so she in, yeah. If you so choose. So she. So she. So she. I feel like the most interesting ones are the ones where they are either 
100% the same or where they are directly opposing each other. Mm-hmm. Where it's something in between or something sort of, you know, like there's this soft misunderstanding. No, I want full drama or I want neither of us can see how similar we are. That's fair. What about you, Stevie? I mean, I think the two of you have covered sort of all of the, the very, like, straightforward answers to this question. So I'm going to go a little bit outside the wheelhouse and say that I think it's really interesting when there is a common threat that unifies the uh, the Empire. Yeah. Say, you know, the uh, Days of Thunder um, with Fulang or, or whoever it may be at the time that sort of goes, hey, like, you know, we got our shit and we got our shit. Mm-hmm. And I'm pointing at both Megan and, Me- Robin and Megan at the moment. <laughs> but this guy over here... This Fuck guy, that guy. He's kind of bad news. <laughs> We're pointing it at him. And, and I kind of feel like maybe we should just put our shit over here for the minute and deal with that. It's the united common enemy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and sort of just being like, yeah, this is this is what we need to be dealing with right now. So, yeah, whether that's Fulang or, you know, uh, the Destroyers or whatever. Yeah. Sometimes it's just time to put everything down, put it on the side and say, hey, you know what? We are all one big empire. Let's work together, take your strength and my strength and your strength and tie it all together and basically say, yep, now we're stronger together, let's do the thing. Yeah, yeah. we've got, we've got like, you know, your your strongest naval, you got your strongest, like, fields, you got your strongest, like, Shugenja, let's come together and do the thing. Yep. Right. Crossover episode, let's go. <clears throat> we love a good crossover episode. Um, so next question is, what are your favorite settings for military games? And I feel like this can field multiple different areas. It could be, like, your favorite geographical area, what your favorite, like, you know, conflict would be, or so on and so forth. But I kind of want to speak to the fact that sometimes you are hired to do war. And so, in my mind, my favorite setting or, like, theme for some kind of a war or a long-term battle would be, like, let's say you hired the lion and someone else hired the unicorn. And now you are lion versus unicorn, but it's not your war. Mm. You are just fighting it. Mm. And you are, like, on the battlefield knowing that you have to kill these people that probably had nothing to do with the war similar to you, right? And I feel like that political intrigue added into a militant campaign is a very high stakes kind of thing, right? So, and I feel like that would bring a lot of confrontation at your table, especially if you have different clans coming together for this one war. You've now hired these folks and like the like the military owner of like, let's say the lion is now fighting with the dragon because the dragon hired them to do a thing. And they're like, my dragon has now, like sorry, my... A lion has now had to kill hundreds of unicorn, you now owe us, right? Mm-hmm. So there's political intrigue backing the militant, right? And I feel like that's a, a huge setting and theme that needs to be reminded to people when it comes to war, right? Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, just sort of to springboard off what you're saying, like the political motivations for military expression, right? I love a good assassination. Yeah. Because while it may feel a little more covert and while it may feel a little more political, it is still a military game. Yeah. Right? The five of us need to go and kill Buddy. The five of us were selected for our military prowess to go and kill Buddy and his three attendants. Because it may stop a war from occurring. So our whole game is centered around how do we isolate them? How do we pick them off one by one? How do we get our value out of all of that? And uh, one of my favorite games that I've ran was a series of assassinations. What a great game that was. (laughs) It was something. But, uh, Did we all play Scorpion in that game? No, no. I, I was uh, Isuki. Yeah, okay, got you. Yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a crab scorpion game yeah. where the 
object of it was to kill a series of crab crime lords yeah. for a, a young crab gangster um, who was a friend of the party so that he could try and bring change to the Empire. And, like, again, not... It didn't feel like a military game, but it is inherently a military game because there was a lot of... It was combat-focused, it was combat-centric, and a lot of the things that occurred as a product of the choices that were being made were military-focused. Yeah, because the results or the consequences of being caught or the consequences of the actions, if they were found out too soon or too late, would result in a larger scale, like, assault. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it was very delicate. It was a smart way of bringing in, uh, a, like, a courtier character, which is what I was playing. I wasn't playing Abushi in that campaign. And it allowed me to participate and contribute in ways that benefited the team without me being there being like, ha-ha, I have stabbed the dude. You know, like, and... <laughs> Uh, guffaw, guffaw. <laughs> like it, it allowed me to to benefit by you know providing resources and informants and information and yeah like basically supporting the people in the party that did the haha i have stabbed a dude in you're welcome ways. yes yeah. thank you you were definitely one of the people that did the <laughs> the uh, stabbings yeah. yes yes um, <laughs> And, you know, if people got injured, like, making sure that they got proper care through contacts and so on and so forth. Like, there are ways to include your political characters in military games just in the same way that there are ways to include your military characters in political games. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Speaking of which, how do we handle mass combat? Um, so I've dealt with mass combat in L5R with um, you, Roman, and I have also dealt with mass combat in D&D with our uh, Adam's campaigns and done in two very different ways. Um, I remember in D&D, we utilize a lot of like skill check nonsense. So like your group is doing a thing, do your skill checks. What are you doing to support XYZ? Uh, Roman, you did a great thing, and I'm sure I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not taking this from you, but you did a very large scale. Each battlefield had a different role. So if you are like within the castle walls, if you wanted to stay there, this is what you were going to do this round, and you have to do that this round, and it takes you two rounds to get to different battlefields kind of thing. So if you wanted to be in the front lines to start with, it's going to take you three turns to get behind the walls. If you wanted to start like behind the walls, it's going to take you two to three turns to get to the towers to be able to like do tower shots kind of thing so and i thought that was a really good way of utilizing large-scale battle with like singular individual characters also utilizing the rules like if you're playing a courtier you're not going to be at the front fucking row you'll probably be behind the lines doing the the calls of the guards and stuff like that so i think that's just like taking into account who your players are and the kind of battle they want to play like do they want to like do it roll for roll and play for fucking seven hours for a round or do you want to speed it up and do like okay well each battlement has a mission and go forward kind of thing right I have a complex relationship with the L5R mass combat system. Hmm. I think that it is well designed for what the 4th edition rules want the game to be, which is immediately super lethal and... Die. <laughs> yeah, like, rock up to mass combat. Unless you were a big deal, you probably don't walk away from mass combat. Yeah. I don't think that is the most cinematic or enjoyable way to engage in mass combat. And so in every instance where I've run it, I have designed a different way of playing mass combat. 
One of my first instances was there were a series of hostages in this area that needed to be recovered, and so the party moved around, effectively a board game, to try and collect these hostages and liberate them. The most recent instance of mass combat that I ran was what Megan was describing, which was there were a variety of battlefields, and then there was a stronghold or home base, and players would have to move between those battlefields and home base in order to actually engage and contribute to the different battlefields or to contribute to the defense of home base. And while I can acknowledge the care that was put into the L5R mass combat system, to me it has always felt like the weakest part of the system overall because it is grindy. Yeah. Again, you will you will write up this character that you have spent months and months and months falling in love with, and you've done all that you can to sort of build them up to be strong enough to survive whatever, and then they rock up to mass combat, and within the first two rounds, it's like, okay, half my health is gone. Dead. Okay, I'm not contributing anything to the next three rounds of combat. Okay, I'm probably dead. Like, it doesn't feel as rewarding to engage in mass combat with your individual character as it would to, let's say, rock up to a game where you knew that mass combat was going to be the focus and then okay so we all play one session of mass combat and all the characters that we've designed are generals deciding how these things sort of roll out yeah but that's my personal opinion fair enough yeah i don't disagree with you i think the the issue with mass combat is that unlike hollywood and the very cinematic like view of how major battles go say like lord of the rings generally you don't get a big space where you can flourish your sword around and look really cool and murder all the people around you. <clears throat> generally fair. you are mashed together with your shields and weapons slammed up close and personal and you are just generally trying to get the metal pit bit into the other person before they get their metal bit into you mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how much of a skilled swordsman you are it doesn't how matter matter how how good you are with your shield chances are the guy beside you is gonna fuck up somebody's gonna fuck up and you're gonna get a little piece of metal on your side and you're gonna die that, yeah. that's just the the harsh reality of medieval combat whether it's you know japanese or european or whatever yeah um so technically mass combat does a very decent job of representing that because your character's abilities and skills don't matter as much yeah however obviously that is not a fun experience you want your character to be that cinematic person who whirls and dances and, and twirls their way through combat and you know calls out their kill count to the the elf in the party wait wrong game uh and, <laughs> and, and, and go back and forth like that yeah um and it just doesn't really work that way when there's that many things on the table because you can't you can't role play through killing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mooks it's just it takes too long and i think the only good way of doing it is to become a game designer sort of like you said you like and, and it's impossible to design a system that works for every instance of what mass combat can be yeah um admittedly i have never played the legends of the five rings mass combat system uh i've never been in one of those games i did play in a dungeons and dragons game uh where we did a mass combat where before the battle it was all about go and recruit these people and each of these people or squads or resources will contribute xyz to this overarching combat mm -hmm. and we will apply those things to like if you if you manage to recruit them you can decide where they're deployed how they're deployed where they go what they do so on and so forth to accomplish xyz goals 
to take down the big bad that's part of this thing. And once you do that, the, the combat will end. Yeah. I thought that was a very interesting way of doing that. However, in a completely separate scenario, say like your your hostages situation, that kind of a mass combat system wouldn't work as well. So I think as, as, as a, a DM or a GM, you really do need to sort of look at what you want to accomplish and do your best to sort of try and find a balance system to relate that to your players in a way that is quick, engaging, and doesn't throw their character out the window and say it doesn't matter what you've truly taught this person to do for the last X number of sessions. Yeah. And that's hard. No, that's fair. And, like, I think there's something to be said with mass combat. Like, the aftermath is a piece that people want to keep in mind. And I think that I've played in a couple campaigns where, and I think Roman does as well with L5R, we roll for who lived mm. for NPCs. Yep. And uh, I've played in campaigns where we do that a lot, even in just, like, regular combat. Like, the NPCs that are around that have been doing things in the background that you forget that exist, at the end of the battle, you roll for whether they lived or not. Mm. And, like, a good storyteller will then say, okay, well, yes, this great NPC that you had behind you died doing this while you were doing this. Mm. And, like, that adds to, like, the mortality of the system right because like i feel like we talk a lot about how like we are heroes in these games even l5r dnd the same thing we're all heroes we all want to be the biggest the strongest and the most successful and have the best like storyline that ends with the most positive heroic action action right but there are npcs in the background that you've connected with that are trying to do the same thing they are that it reminds you that you are mortal yep is that the team that you rocked up of 15, even though four of you are PCs and the rest of you are NPCs, six of you walked out. Yep. Yeah. Roll for who survived. Yep. Right? So I think that's a big thing to remember for mass combat is that your NPCs, if like, and I, Adam's rule is always great. If your NPCs can do it, you can too. Mm-hmm. And like, if you can do it, your NPCs can. If you can do it, your enemies can. Yep. So. That stakes. Yeah, man. Yep. Adds the mortality piece, right? Speaking of mortality and morality, political games. <laughs> political games are structured around building relationships and achieving clan goals. Normally, when a samurai is sent to represent their lord in an event, it is with an understanding that they are there to do their lord's will. As such, the behavior and achievements of such samurai will be under greater scrutiny than normal, especially when gossip and rumor mongering run high. There are summer and winter courts. Uh, the term winter court was generally applied to any extended court that a member of Rokugan's nobility held for the duration of winter. Summer courts came into fashion after the forming of the colonies, as the weather in the deep of summer was deemed too inhospitable to engage in any great work or acts of war. It was considered a time of great political opportunity, as well as a place where those of all walks of life can demonstrate their skill and ability. The Imperial Winter Court was, of course, the most prestigious, and was hosted in a palace of the Emperor's choosing, which differs from year to year. The invitations were officially given out by whoever was selected to be the host that year, but each was written by the imperial scribes at the express command of the emperor. These recipients represented the only individuals permitted to stay the winter in the emperor's presence. Other guests only had access to the courtly functions and official appearances. Courts are a place where many samurai gather to discuss important events, engage in competitions with one another, negotiate marriages, treaties, and trade deals. In many ways, it is another battlefield all its own. While all walks of samurai are important at courts, this is where monks and courtier really get to shine. All right, court games. Let's roll some dice. That's another two. Roll five. I also rolled a five. Roll off. Rule of nine. Six. Uh, okay, which clans do you feel interact the most in political games? The political games 
I will always focus on, like, there's a crane there and there is a scorpion there. Even if it has nothing to do with the crane and the scorpion, there's always a crane there and there's always a scorpion there. Because they're the folks who are like, yeah, this shit is popping off. We need to be there to know who we are going to support going forward. Yeah. Um, my favorite to throw into political games with each other... Again, I'm going to go with the the odd fellows, right? Folks yeah. who are on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of like what they want, where they're at, what their needs are. The the crab are super militant, the phoenix are super pacifistic. So, to throw the crab and the phoenix face to face in an issue over something that could be fought about or could just have hands shaken over is really interesting to me. Yeah. Um I love courts where the person running the court is typically, like, lower honor than everybody else. Because it forces all of the high honor samurai to, like, really reevaluate what it is they're doing and why it is they're doing it. Unclench their butt cheeks. A little bit, yeah. Like, <laughs> they're still going to act high and mighty, but it's just like, okay, so I don't have to beat myself up as badly if I slip up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think this is a good time to say that any clan can be involved in a political conversation or political game. Uh, it just depends on, like, your flavor and what you want to happen from it. And, like, I don't know. I enjoy the politics around history and where it lies and the truth behind it. Mm. Um, and I think that's why I, like, gravitated towards the uh, Phoenix clan that has the largest library and the largest, like, documented history of Rokugan. Mm. And yet it can still be doctored based on political intrigue and political conversation, right? So I love the idea of taking a crane and another clan who's like, hey, I need this wiped from history. And be like, okay, well, let's talk about that. Why? What's going on? And have that, like, your clan has now gone through a great disservice of the clan, like the, the empire. You know, I want this scrubbed from history. How do I get that done? Yeah. And I like that idea of utilizing the histories and the books and how to get that wiped. And then like it just surviving somewhere in some small piece or small document that just remains forever that got forgotten about. Like a letter from a loved one or what have you. Mm. Right? So I find that that's what intrigues me more about the politics side of things. Not necessarily holding like a full-on court, but like clans specifically trying to maintain their clan's honor in any way, shape, or form they can. And they will do it any way that they can. Right? And I think that's why any clan can be involved in a politics game. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you get sort of hit the nail on the head. Like, anybody can really rock up to a politics game and do the thing. Yeah. It's about your flavor. And, like, last episode I sort of talked about how the Mantis's sort of motto is just, like, fake it till you make it. Because that's how they negotiate. They walk up with the intent that they are owed everything and work backwards from there. Yeah. Like, it's just pure sort of, like, bravado and, you know, assumption of, of, uh, of rightness or of being in the right mm -hmm. is really sort of their, their, their flavor of negotiation, whereas the crane are going to come in and may try and make you slip up. Yeah. They're going to be all niceties and kindness and, and, oh, don't worry about it. And then suddenly you're going to say the one wrong thing and they're like... Gotcha, bitch. Yeah, nailed it. I think the word that you're looking for is conviction. Yes. <laughs> yes. Unrelenting, Con undisputed conviction. Fair. Uh, and perhaps a dash of courage to be able to pull that off. 
So it, it does, like, in the same way that there are different styles of combat, there are different styles of political intrigue. And the other thing that's really nice about court is that court isn't just about, hey, who's right and who's wrong, or who who gets what they want and who doesn't. It's also about, uh, you know, the festivities and the opportunities to sort of show off what your clan can do. There will be martial competitions where people will show off their martial skills or their dueling skills or their you know their gift giving abilities i think honestly gift giving is probably the one thing that is very sort of unique to each person and each character they play um, because every court opens up with a gift giving ceremony from every delegation to the hosts of that political court yeah and the gifts that people come up with both as players and as characters says a lot about who they are and who their character is, and how they present it. Um, we talked a little bit about the sort of three three offerings, and it goes back and forth where they go, I have got you this thing because blah, and the receiver will say, oh, well, thank you, but I cannot accept because this. And they will say, oh, but there is this reason that you should have it, and it's of just this very fine dance back and forth to continue offering it without insulting either person by saying, oh, I don't need it, so you should have it, or by saying, oh, well, that's useless, so I don't want it. Yeah. Like, it, it is this very fine verbal dialogue that sort of plays back and forth. Is required in the yes. situations, yeah. Uh, and I think, again, that, that really comes down to the clan, the character, and the player. Fair enough. All right, what are our favorite settings for political games? I love smaller courts. Yeah? Yeah. I love small, intimate, like, this is a, it's an off-season, like, hey, y'all should come and hang out with me at my summer villa for a couple of weeks before the actual courts pop off. Like, these three clans, these, sorry, not even these three fan, like clans, like, these three people and their immediate blood families from three different clans, because they're my homies that I have met at other courts, please come and hang out at my, like, summer getaway. And so this person as the host has all of the power and all of the, um, like, all the prestige. Yeah. And they get to have their three homies and their families there with them. And you get a smaller representation of what it would be like to be at a greater court, but with a much less pressure and much lower stakes. Yeah. You know? So you get the opportunity to interact with people who are a little bit more wizened than you, interact with people who have all of that extra experience, and yet not have to worry about embarrassing yourself in front of all these people. Fair enough. Um... I think the thing to remember with like political games is it can happen at any time in a campaign. And I like the idea of the political game being a small part of a larger campaign. So like, let's say you're trying to go do a thing, but you're not in your homelands. There's politics involved with that. You might have to go and talk to someone's daimyo or, you know, clan champion to get permission to do the thing that you need to do within their lands. And so like that for a session within your campaign can be a very heavy political game. It could enter within, you have to bring a gift. You have to go do a tea ceremony. You have to go and talk to the daimyo, get permission to do the thing. They give you permission, but now tonight you have to be involved in a small court 
said, like, you know, in, in accordance to, like, what Roman was saying, where it is just, like, amazing, absolutely accepted. I think it's going to be greater good for our clan for you to do this thing in our lands. Come on in. We'll have a party tonight to celebrate, like, you know, X, Y, Z. Uh, and then it'll be a small little court and or, like, gathering held where you can meet NPCs, fall in love, do all these things. A smaller moment within a campaign that has a larger storyline down the, down the line, right? Mm. Um, and that's the part of the polit politics that I like is that the implications of what your clan is doing in someone else's lands is going to have an impact on the Empire as a whole. Hmm. So, what about you, Steve? I think that um, my view on courts, or at least court-centric games, is sort of parallel to yours, but slightly different. In the sense that I like a court game that has a subplot. Yeah. So, think like a movie like Knives Out, for example. Yeah. <laughs> where, where there's a bunch of people that show up for a purpose to discuss something, and then a thing happens. Yeah. That, that is actually an excellent, like... Description of a Description court. of a court game. <laughs> yes. And, and, like, having that subplot that, like, threads its way in and out of the political intrigue, but also gives other things to focus on or worry about, makes it that much higher stakes and that much more interesting. Because there's more than just, like, hmm, how am I going to make them do the thing I want them to do to consider? There's also, huh, that guy died, and I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I wonder what's going on. Mm. And it gives that secondary focus to basically play around with. I mean, obviously, it doesn't have to be a murder. It can be there's a, a coup happening in the background that happens to be happening in the lands that you're currently visiting, and you have to figure out how to navigate that particular political environment where there's somebody leading leading the clan that you're visiting or the, the village that you're visiting, but maybe they came into that power illegitimately. Yeah. Or maybe they're barely holding on to that power, but it is legitimate. Or, you know, there's some kind of other something or other going on behind the scenes that your party is intended to sort of, like, figure out as it plays into things as it goes. And maybe accomplishing things in that subplot gives you bargaining tokens to use in the political aspects. Yeah. Um, so I think that a straight political game can work absolutely just fine. You can absolutely just show up to court and be like, hey, this is the problem, let's talk about it and figure it out. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. That can be a very engaging, uh, like, environment to work with. But I think adding that extra level, that sub-level of something else going on is what really gives it flavor and flair and can allow everybody to get involved because I think like I said before like a political game should be able to include your martial and shigenja characters and a martial game should be able to include your court chairs in some level yeah some capacity yeah. right speaking of which how do we handle a large court I map the fuck out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. build me a castle, bitches. So every time that I've run larger courts, the first thing that I do is it's like, okay, so who who owns the place that we're going to? Yeah. Who is their immediate family? Who are the people attached to their immediate family? Who are the relevant, um, you know, like attendants and lovers and this, that, and the other? I When I build a court game, I will build the sandbox that all of these people exist in. Yeah. And I will build a web of relationships and pre-existing problems and drama. And it sounds like a lot of work. It's really not. Yeah. You pick the three or four stories that you want to tell within this sandbox. And you pick the characters that are involved in those stories. And then you let your players decide, oh, well, I sort of rubbed up against this, like weird romance that's going on over to the left over here even though i can see that there is a coup going on over to the right over here which of these two do i want to play into and as long as you have your broad strokes in place 
you can choose which of those things you want to really embellish and really make the the crux of your plot going forward. Um, most of my large courts are a series of problems and rumors, and then depending on which rumors my players decide to pick up on, those rumors become the plot. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, like, along similar lines, um... If you are not a DM who enjoys building a thousand NPCs and building a web like that, delegates. What what clans are there? Which ones are present? Normally, if your player's like, I want to explore and see if I hear any rumors X, Y, Z. You're the DM. You can control what fucking rumor they hear. You know what I mean? And what NPC they run into. So build delegates. If you don't want to impede the political intrigue too heavy, too fast, give them a delegate. Don't give them the daimyo that happens to be present. Give them someone who is a part of that clan who is important in a political dream in some way, but don't put them in front of like the big important person of the clan who happens to be present that day. You're going to deal with their guard. You're going to deal with their bushi. You're going to deal with their, like, you know, their, their delegate, right? Ah, AKA uh, Nameless Mook. Nameless Mook. Exactly. Okay. So don't, don't build the character that's important. Build, build the ones so, that are working for them. So supply. Yeah. Gotcha. And if they get interested in that, build it for the next session. Okay. You know what I mean? So, like, because, like, and you can play to your characters, at this point, your players' backgrounds. If you have a player who's very specifically interested in having a romance, a court game and winning in court is a great place to introduce a romance. Figure out what their greatest ideals for a romantic partner would be, build that character, put it in there, they're going to focus on that. They will focus on nothing else, right? So, like, that's a good place to kind of infiltrate some of those likes and loves that your characters are actually wanting to be a part of. Uh, if they are really wanting to be part of the political intrigue and they're wandering around, put them in front of the daimyo, right? Give them that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Give them that chance to be that person for your campaign. Sure, right? So I feel like political games offers that opportunity to build someone's backstory further before getting into the like militant version of the game. Hmm. Or if militant version is needed, whatever. Exploration, whatever. The political side of things is your exploration of how to build your NPC. It's fair. Yeah. I'm just sitting across the table here sort of smirking because I can think of about a billion different times where Roman has been like, yeah, you meet with this mook. And we're like, what's their name? Uh, 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 Yoritomo uh, A. Yeah, yeah. Yoritomo <laughs> Pico. <laughs> Why are you gonna put me on blast? Each, like each knee, she go. Yeah, and then we're like, well, what are they all about? And then Roman will make real characters, and we'll walk up and be like, oh, okay, cool, thanks, bye. <laughs> <laughs> this is not what I wanted. <laughs> I mean, so, that, that's just, that's just honestly that's the the GM dilemma, right? Oh, like, for sure. You, you invest in these really important, like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be super, super relevant to my plot. And then your players ignore them. Oh, but I really want to hear about the guard. Oh, I really want to hear about this, like, random shopkeep. It's just like, okay, okay well, I'm going to rip all of this fucking lore <laughs> that I had for this important character, and I'm just going to throw it on the character that I guess you've decided to care about, you son of a bitch. Okay, but when you start every sentence with, here's this sexy female character, and or here's this sexy male character, I'd be like... Great, I'm going to talk to them for the next 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> make, make all of my relevant NPCs fuckable. Got it. Got it, yeah. Yep. Fair, I mean, fair, that, fair. that does kind of add up. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> but yeah, as far as large courts go for me, I mean, I think it is really about options. 
there needs to be options and threads that you can pick at and play with and different political agendas to sort of th that are threaded throughout things that can be either exploited or you know uh, investigated because when it comes to courts the hardest part i think for both the gm and the player is finding leverage points yep because as a as a as a as somebody who's running the game, you literally have to write in weaknesses. You have to write in reasons that your NPCs will will trip over. Think, like things that they're going to have problems with, or things in their past and their history, or the way that they conduct themselves that the players can exploit. Yeah. There needs to be weakness. In the same way that when you throw an enemy at at a bushi, there should be a way for them to do more damage or handle them in a way that is more efficient, especially if they're a specialized enemy. Yeah. If they're weak to, or sorry, if they're strong against martial skills, they should be weak to magic or something like that. So in a court game, there needs to be different little weaknesses around each of the different parties so that the players can play. Yeah. And I think that does make things a bit more complicated, but it gives, it gives a reason to go and talk to people. If, if you walk up to everybody and they're just like, hey, this is my name, and this is why I'm here, and, you know, it's really nice to meet you, cool, that's great, I guess. But, like, I want something there that I can pick up on and go, ah, I see, you really like liquor. We should go for a drink. Yeah. And we should chat. And then once I've gotten five drinks in you, maybe I'll find out the things that you're really here for. Yeah. I want those things in the armor that I can pry at and pull pull away at to find that weak point that I can sort of go, ah, yes, that's where I'm going to get my advantage from. Yeah. If you want to put in the legwork, and there are a ton of skills on courtiers that allow you to leverage those skills to find those weak points, give me something, give, let me use them. Yeah. And it is harder. It's much harder than saying, ah, this is weak to magic. Ah, this is weak to... I don't know, uh, long-range attacks. You know, those things are easy to apply to a thing and then allow your players to take advantage of. Writing weaknesses into your NPCs while also making them interesting is harder. Yeah. And displaying them in a way that isn't super obvious. Yes. Like It's like, okay, you see Buddy falling all over himself because he's got a bottle in his hand. Okay, we know he's drunk. Um, this, this person has a sweet spot for um, children because his children died. Mm. Is a difficult thing to display in a way and to have that be passed along. Organically. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. It would take conversation and, hey, I'm doing this thing, and they find out that you have a kid, and then they finally get very interested. Okay, well, what's their name? What's this? And they become very interested in that piece, right? And it's investigative, and it really requires role play. And a lot of, weirdly enough, and I'm going to say the internet, I'm sorry, D&D &D players technically, for the most part, aren't good role players. <laughs> <laughs> because we have a system that backs not having to role play. So you're gonna get some feedback because I'm gonna drop the micro. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas L5R builds a system that is specific around requiring role play and investigation. Call of Cthulhu requires investigation and role play. There are a lot of systems that do that, but like D and D fifth edition. Now that we've expanded the point we were at. I love D&D. I will always play D&D. I prefer it. It's great. It's a great teaching system. It's a great intro role-playing game. But it really feeds that you do not have to role-play. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Still love my D20. Yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> but I'm just saying. Yeah, you're not wrong. Political games require role-play. 
So I think that when we've talked about this way at the beginning of our of this um, uh, podcast is in the session zero, you have to find out what kind of game you want to play. Yep. Right? Like, do you want to play a political game? Sure. If you're going to play in it, you have to be able to speak. Yes. If you want to play in a military game, cool. You have to like and understand the battle system. Like, because they're two very different and yet coinciding systems. So that brings me to our next point is now that we've kind of explored what political games look like and what military games look like, how do we bring those two together? It starts with picking your time period. Yeah. When do you want to run your game? Because L5R has such a long and storied history and there are so many things that change from generation to generation, it is important to know when you would like to run your game. A game run during the Age of Conquest will be very different than a game run just after the first day of Thunder. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to pick your big bad, right? Because there are certain big bads that will be applicable in one time period and not applicable in another. You're not going to be dealing with a blood speaker at the dawn of the Empire because the blood speakers weren't there. You're not going to be dealing with destroyers just after the second day of Thunder because, again, they didn't show up until later on. So knowing the timeline, understanding what time period you're trying to run your game in is very important. Um, Picking your scale is also important. Do you want a game that is going to exist within a castle, or do you want a a game that is going to span the empire? As with most role-playing game storytelling, you need to sort of know where you want to go and what you want to accomplish with the story you're trying to tell. I always recommend starting small. Deciding that you want to run something that encompasses the entire empire is going to give you much more homework than you are signed up for. Start with a town. Start with a province. And then sort of work out from there. And then once you have that in mind, map your story. I look at role-playing games in the same way that I look at TV shows or that I look at uh, anime. So a certain number of episodes for an arc. An arc being a full story. A campaign could be made up of one arc. A campaign could be made up of three to five arcs. Once you have decided on your scale and what you would like to do and how you would like to progress through those things, decide how you would like to sort of chop up your sessions. Because while your players are going to alter your structure, you still need to have a structure to sort of maneuver your players through. So let's say you have planned for 12 episodes, 12 sessions worth of gameplay. Mm -hmm. And your players get through two episodes worth of content in four episodes. Well, you can now choose whether your content needs to be extended or whether or not your content needs to be um, sort of cut back a little bit Mm -hmm. in order to accommodate for the pace that your characters are playing at. If there's anything that I've learned about most role-playing game players is that they will never be upset with having more content. Anything that you write will normally go further than you expect it to. However, the pacing of your story is important and understanding that your plot needs to feel punchy is important. So I I do want to go back to your first thing about picking your time period, picking your big bet, and picking your scale. I don't have any issue with any one of those points in particular. Um, I just want to uh, offer an alternative um, perspective on that. Of course. Because you, my friend, and us, by association to a certain degree, are fanboys. Hey, yo. Fan people. Fan people. Um, 
who have played the card game and played the RPG for a long time, and therefore the core storyline is near and dear to our hearts. Mm -hmm. We're familiar with it to a certain extent we lived it. That is what happened to us. But just like D&D, where they provide a setting and, you know, some people that existed during those times and so on and so forth, depending on how much you read into the books and all the other stuff, you know, Forgotten Realms, la la la, Nothing says that you have to have things be canonically accurate to the timeline that was set out by the original source. So if you want to have uh, the, the Destroyer show up right after the second Day of Thunder, do it. Yeah. Why not? But just make sure that you are setting your period and your time and your, your scale to what you want. Mm -hmm. Set it however you want to, whenever you want to. There's nothing saying that you can't have an alternate timeline that, that plays out the way you want it to. Maybe you end up in an epic and things just end up in a different play order. Do whatever you want to with your campaign. Just make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into and plan ahead to know when things are going to be happening and what's going to be resulting in those decisions. Yeah, the, the why yes. is the important part of it, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yes. Because you can, you can throw anything anywhere, yep. right? Like, you can decide that after the uh, Battle of White Stag, the Rokugani decide that they're not going to completely get rid of all things Gaijin, but that they're going to embrace all things Gaijin. The foreigners have access to all of these things and all of this technology and all of this power that we just haven't had. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It is foolish of us to ignore those things. So we're going to incorporate as many of them into our empire as possible. Yeah. That is a choice that you can make. Absolutely. But you need to know why. Yes. And you need to be willing to understand how that is going to affect the Empire at large. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who is running a campaign with this system, if you really, really want to, throw it a thousand years in the future, and suddenly your samurais are robots, or mecha, or whatever, you can probably <laughs> use the same rules. You just have giant lightsaber katanas instead of metal ones. Like, do what you want to do with your game. Just have a why and a how attached to the reason that's happening. These are the origin stories of Star Wars, guys, by the way. For those of you curious, there there are, in fact, a uh, there's a whole alternate setting called L5 Star, where uh, it Stop. is the far future uh, L5. Uh, to... It's Star Wars. It's, Star Wars. <laughs> it's basically Star Wars. <laughs> Not to piss off the internet, but we created Star Wars. <laughs> um, what, one more point that I sort of wanted to get into was the idea of, with your epics... Typically, they either start with war or they start at court, right? So they either start with a war finishing and then dealing with the aftermath of that war or dealing with those moments, those those months or that year before a big war kicks up, in my opinion. There has to be an inciting event in some way, shape, or form. And whether it is people talking about the fact that violence is necessary or the violence that was necessary sort of coming to an end and people rebuilding afterwards. Those are the two big sort of cornerstones, keystones to an epic, in my opinion. All right, speaking of epics, we're going to do a rapid-fire 30-second epic creation. Oh, no. So roll your dice, and you have to come up with a random epic. Seven. Shit. Six. I rolled an eight. Ha-ha! <laughs> I have more time. <laughs> okay. You're first, Roman. Throw it out. Okay, my 30-second epic. Go. Um, it is going to be an issue explored between the mantis and the crab, because they are trying to decide if uh, Kaimetsu Uo, the member of the crab who left to uh, create the mantis, 
is in fact uh, worthy of veneration. So the crab are just like, okay, like cool, he did this thing, like you know, we like we we respect him. He is a crab, like person of import. And the mantis is like, no, 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 you guys kicked him out. Like you're not allowed to claim him as being your person. He's our person. And so the crab and the mantis sort of get into a tiff about which of them are allowed to actually claim Kaimetsu Uo as um, like a member of their clan because technically they're both correct, mm. but it's about which of them actually gets to have that as their thing in the long term. Fair. So if you wanted it to be more of a like, it would start with something military in my opinion mm. because they're both quite militant clans. It would start with a couple of small skirmishes. It would start with like tavern brawls. Tavern brawls would escalate to, you know, uh, something city level, and then city level would escalate to uh, maybe, like, something regional until lords were brought in to deal with it on a political front. Fair. Steve? Um, Okay, so in the Dragonlands, in the mountains, a long-forgotten subterranean Nizumi Warren is unearthed and uh, has to reintegrate with society, so they send a delegation to go and speak with them, catch them up to speed, and try and find out a peaceful solution to having them suddenly in the center of... Um, probably some, somewhere fairly central to the Dragon Clan and see if perhaps they would be willing to either move or some kind of middle ground uh, consideration to allow them to coexist together, um, which opens up either a solution that can be politically reached or uh, some kind of military conflict that results in open warfare over this underground uh, warren system where you are fighting on uh, unfamiliar terrain uh, against a somewhat forgotten enemy. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, Battle for the Shadowlands. (laughs) And your big, big bad is going to actually be the uh, elemental master of Void. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah, that's all you got? <laughs> Mostly because, like, the Phoenix are connected slightly to the clan that can actually operate within the Shadowlands. Uh, the cleansing of the Shadowlands. Not necessarily the cleansing of the Shadowlands, but there are clans that cl- clans that exist within the Shadowlands. Hmm. I mean, so so the, the Toritaka of the Crab, uh, the Falcon clan, um, their lands existed within the Shadowlands. Yes. And they are constantly trying to, like, get their lands back. Same thing with the Kuni. Yes. So I feel like that would be a, like, not necessarily the Crablands, but as a whole, trying to reclaim the Shadowlands and purify it to a degree. But it would be a battle for who gets the Shadowlands. So they have to unite as an empire to reclaim the Shadowlands, but then who gets the Shadowlands at the end would be the political entry. Ah, interesting. So that is is the, like, trying to get less into the nitty-gritty of what clan does what. That is the overarching operation here. So so now that we've reclaimed these (laughs) unclaimable fucking wastelands, like, who gets to actually... Who actually owns them at this point. Who puts the stamp on it. Who has claim on it. Who has stance on it. Because at one point, every clan has touched those lands at some point. So who actually actually gets it in the end that has some interesting like like at war implications as well like something i i learned about not too long ago um is some of the difficulties that like in world war ii the coalition forces had where like there were better missions and less good missions where it was like okay well we're coalitions so we're all working together but like who gets the shit jobs mm-hmm. and then like how do we get compensated for doing the shit jobs and sometimes the right people weren't sent to the right places because it was like well like we're gonna send you here because you're less likely to die but (laughs) 
the the team you're, you're probably the team that should have gone kind of idea so like that could be a really interesting sort of political ex-military kind of discussion that needed to be happened about like yeah this area of the shadowlands is super dangerous who wants to go <laughs> who wants to be there nobody that's who <laughs> well the thing is like most people want to be there and so it's like, how, how do you choose between all of the pick-me's? Yeah. Mm. Right? Who do you choose without offending anybody? What pick-me girl do you pick today? Yeah. <laughs> you pick all of them. Yeah, I guess that's, that's the, the different uh, difference in political intrigue between our world and Rokugan, but same kind of idea. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. All right, so that's all for today's episode in this series on Legend of the Five Rings. Make sure to like and comment with which style of game you'd like to try for your first game of L5R. Don't forget to follow and subscribe because next episode we will be exploring the various enemies of the Empire. For more info and details, please check the show notes. When you're resolved from the beginning, you will not be perplexed. This understanding extends to everything. Be resolved, young samurai, and tell the world what you have witnessed here today.